Psalm 110. Last week we began a series of sermons leading up to the, the Christmas holiday, considering Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Today, um, considering the, the office of priest, as we saw uh, last week, the, the office of prophet uh, pulls on some of the themes of the o- other offices as well, where Jesus, a prophet like Moses, um, acts as, as a mediator. And the same is true of the office of priest as we consider that together, making preparation for uh, the table of the Lord to gather around it and to eat and drink in faith. So uh, we'll consider these things together. Psalm 110, God's holy word. He gives us his word for our good, inspires it by spirit. Before we read and consider this scripture together, let us pray. Father, we pray that uh, you would open minds, that you would uh, soften hearts, and that you would enliven our souls through your word, by your spirit, and uh, for your son's sake. Amen. Psalm 110 of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Stay in your lane and do your job. Know what your role is. Know your role. We've heard uh, phrases like this because we know that in a company, or on a sports team, or in a, in a group project that you work on at school, we divvy up the work. We divide up the responsibilities. Uh, a quarterback is not supposed to go out on defense and try and tackle the running back, at least not by the time you get to college and the pros. Right? He's too valuable to the team to do that, and he has his own responsibilities. An accountant does not preside over the year-end performance reviews or try to reimagine the top-down structure of a company or an organization. The person who's put in charge of putting together and decorating the poster board for a group presentation at school should not be the one who writes all the words of the speech, the presentation that you give in front of the class, unless you're like my wife, in which case in high school everybody knew that she wanted the good grade uh, the most and they could count on her to do all of the work so they could all just sit back and be lazy. She wasn't a big fan of uh, group projects, as you can probably guess. 
Last week, we considered Jesus as our great high prophet. He is our prophet. He came to reveal the decisive revelation from God. But as a, as a prophet like unto Moses, there are these mysterious things about his office of prophet where he's, he's executing the covenant. He's, he's, he's a mediator between God and the people of God. And similar things are true, as I mentioned, of the priesthood of Jesus. We associate uh, the work of mediation mostly with the office of priest. But what we find that is unique and wonderful and wonderfully comforting about the priesthood of Jesus Christ is that it is a royal priesthood. Not only is it a royal priesthood, but it is an eternal priesthood. Old Testament priests and kings had to stay in their lane. They had to know their roles. They had to do their job. But in the Bible, in the scriptures, all lanes lead us to the Savior, to Jesus Christ, who is our salvation and our redemption. So, the first thing to consider, the priest reigns. The, the high priest reigns. Psalm 110, we're using this to think about the priesthood of Jesus, but this is actually, to make the point for us, a royal, a royal psalm. A royal psalm, having to do with royalty, kingship. It's centered around two divine oaths that we see in verses 1 and 4. It gives shape to the entire psalm and what it means. Verse 1, this mysterious utterance. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Interesting. In the English, it gets a little confusing, doesn't it? The Lord says to my Lord. You'll notice that first Lord is in all capitals, uh, signifying to us that this is the, the covenant name of God. So if you were to translate this in a perhaps a more wooden way, you might say, an oracle of Yahweh to my sovereign master. What's going on uh, with this? We know that this is given to us by David. What's interesting about this is that David is the greatest royal figure in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. He was the king that everyone set up in their minds. Uh, that's the kind of king that God wants to give us in the future. The Messiah will be the son of David. But in the, the giving of this psalm through the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, David recognizes two that have authority over himself. An oracle of Yahweh to my sovereign master, the, the greatest royal figure in the Old Testament, all of a sudden becomes the the poet in the court of the king, merely a servant. So this is mysterious. It, it has a, a sense of heavenliness in this psalm. There are things about it that have this, this distinct heavenly character. So what is happening here is David gets, by, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is made privy to these timeless, eternal, and heavenly oaths that God has made. And the first one, sit at my right hand. Shall I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Ultimately, this is God, the Father, making an oath to the Messiah. The second oracle is also extremely interesting. Verse 4, another heavenly prophecy, eternal declaration, an oath of God made to the Messiah, the chosen one. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears only one other time. 
In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Abraham defeats four kings in and around Canaan. He rescues his relative Lot. And after the battle, he encounters this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. We know nothing about him uh, up until that point. We learn that he is a king of Salem, but also that he is a priest of the Most High God. Interesting language, but certainly signifying to us that he was a priest of the true God, uh, the only God. The name... Melchizedek is actually just uh, scrunching together the Hebrew words for king and righteous. Melech, king, Zedek, righteous, king of righteousness, or the righteous king. Abraham pays tribute to him. And the author of the book of Hebrews will look back upon that and see that as Abraham recognizing and noticing that he, has, he falls under the authority of Melchizedek in this very mysterious kind of way. What we see is, of course, that he's pointing forward to Jesus Christ. It was not strange in that time for kings to act as priests. Nations liked that, liked things a little more easier, cleaner picture. The one who's handling the political and the military affairs, uh, let's have him handle the religious affairs as well. But in Israel, of course, this was not allowed. In Old Testament Israel, the kingship was entrusted to David's line in the tribe of Judah The priesthood uh, entrusted to Aaron's line in the tribe of Levi. King and priest were supposed to stay in their lane. They were supposed to. And one of the low points of Saul's kingship or where we see it really begin to deteriorate is when he assumes more priestly responsibilities in 1 Samuel 13. David himself, the one who records this psalm for us, these declarations and oaths for us, God told him that he was not to build the house of God. And it's not, that wasn't David's way of saying he wanted to become a priest, but he wanted the temple of God to be built. And the Lord said, no, the, the blood of the battlefield is on your hands, and you will not build my house. But what David says is that there will come one, the Messiah will come and establish a priesthood that's different, that brings together these two offices of king and priest. And this brings us to Jesus who is, like Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God, but he is also the Most High Priest, who is himself God. Jesus brings these two offices together, king and priest, and by doing so, he shows the greatness of his work for us. His life, his death, resurrection, and ascension. The comfort that Christians derive from this truth, the priesthood of Jesus, and how it's it's different than the Levitical priesthood. The comfort that we derive from it cannot be overstated. We come back to the first oracle of the psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, sits at the right hand of God. He was risen from the dead. He ascends into heaven. And that is where he sits. That prophecy has been fulfilled. That oath has come true, but what we know and what we learn about that through Jesus Christ being our great high priest is that that's not just a position of authority. To dwell at the right hand of a reigning king is to share in that authority, but what what theologians call the session of Christ, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, is not just one of authority, but it's one of intercession. Intercession, Christ's heavenly life. We know that through, or we know in that, that he is interceding for us. If Jesus were only a king and not a priest, 
If he were only a king and not a priest, perhaps as uh, his people we should fear his heavy hand in judgment. We learn in this psalm that the judgment of Jesus Christ is nothing to be trifled with. It's a very serious and uh, condemning judgment. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath, we read. He will judge nations and he will heap up the dead. But since Jesus is both king and priest, he is in heaven not only to rule and to reign, but also to make intercession. And when we talk about the intercession of Jesus, what are we saying? We're saying that he intercedes for for our sin. We're saying that he is in heaven, ever living to make intercession for our sin. That is why he appears in the heavenly courtroom as our great high priest. He appears there for sin. He appears there for sin. As I mentioned at the beginning of our worship service this morning, we need to do a better job of realizing and understanding the depth of our sin. When we come together to remember the cross, we need to know and understand. As we remember the work of Jesus, we say, that's how bad I am. That's how bad we are. The Son of God had to go to the cross, but the comfort for the Christian is that our great high priest appears in heaven to intercede for sin. And he does so as a priest who reigns. Hebrews chapter 7, the author of Hebrews picks up on this and keeps coming back to it and naming it as such a great comfort for us. In light of all this, he says, Hebrews seven twenty-five, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. He's drawing distinction there between priests who die and need to be replaced and The sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats can never ultimately take away sin. Jesus says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, and then he says, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. In other words, Jesus is holy and righteous. He is that that perfect sacrifice that could cover sin. But then the author of Hebrews says, Not only is he holy and innocent and unstained, he's exalted above the heavens. He goes to his reign as king. The fact that he reigns as the king of kings. Richard Sibbs, one of my favorite Puritans, says this about the priesthood of Jesus, that he is priest and king, like Melchizedek. He says, what should we learn from this? But to come boldly to the throne of grace in all our grievances. Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? That's why he appears as our priest in heaven, to intercede for sin. If you're discouraged by your sin, think about that. Are you bruised, he says. Be of good comfort, he calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel. What's Satan's counsel? Hide, hide what you've done. Run away from God. He'd never forgive you for what you've done. He doesn't have have the grace to forgive you. You've done too much. Go to Christ, Sib says, although trembling as the poor woman who says, if I may but touch his garment, we shall be healed and have a gracious answer. Go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason, that we might boldly go to him. Well, might the angel proclaim from heaven, Behold, I bring you good tidings 
of great joy. Why is the Christmas story good news? Because we're nicer to everybody for 25 days of the year? No, the Christmas story is good news. It is gospel because the Son of God came as the fulfillment of the prophecies of Scripture to be the one who would unite these offices of king and of priest. And that is why it is a distinctly Christian comfort that nothing can separate us from our covenant God. Because the one who has all power and who has all authority is the one who intercedes for our sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Paul is saying, He's reigning as the king of kings, and he appears in heaven as your high priest. So he has all authority, and he shows you all grace in appearing there for your sin. And that's why Paul says, what can separate us? Who shall separate us? Shall our sin, shall the travails and tribulations of this life? No, I am convinced that nothing in heaven and on earth... No angels, nor demons, things to come, nor powers, height, depth, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The priest reigns. The priest reigns. As we close, then, the king conquers sin. The king conquers sin. It cuts both ways. The the priest is a a reigning priest. The king is a a conquering king, but he conquers by conquering sin. Verse 2 We read that this priest king will rule in the midst of your enemies. The the picture you have there is uh, they're being plopped down in the middle of enemy territory and you're surrounded by enemies on all sides. We've seen in movies the hero kind of get out of such situations. That's not what verse 2 is really saying. Ruling in the midst of your enemies doesn't mean to be surrounded by your enemies. It's uh, the word there for in the midst is really the inner parts of a man. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. Everything that is within me, bless his holy name. That's the word there in verse 2 of Psalm 110. The inner man. It's a curious phrase, isn't it? Rule in the midst of your enemies, from, from the inside of them out. But that is fulfilled in that Jesus conquers his enemies by making his enemies into friends at the cross. Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is, of course, another huge comfort for us that we know the kingly rule of Jesus as he conquers our sin. We read Psalm 110. Judgment is going to come. Jesus Christ will come to judge the world in righteousness and all will bend the knee. But those who bend the knee now to him, who know his reconciling work, who know his life-giving work, he makes his enemies into friends. And he rules in the midst of his enemies as he conquers our sin. As he conquers our sin. As he gives us new life by the Spirit. Uh, the, the Christian moral vision of life is that we are to, to know this reign more and more. That we are to be united to Christ more and more. Our Reformed confessions say that as we eat and drink at the table in faith, 
we are united more and more to Jesus Christ. That's why it's an ongoing practice in the life of the Christian to gather around the table. It's something that we do uh, often. It's something that we do repeatedly. It's important to do as a means of grace because by it, we're united more and more to Christ. And we take our cue morally in developing godliness and virtue through the fact that Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling in heaven. That is our compass And that's what gives direction to our life, to help us realize the life that we have in Christ. Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, Paul says, that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness and idolatry. We know and we rejoice in these things. One theologian says, We who have fled to Christ, who were formerly his enemies, are now by his grace and spirit enabled to lay down our inmost parts to Christ, to be subject to him in the inner man, in the affections and the mind. We become subject to him in our inner man. That's how he rules in the midst of his enemies now. He conquers, he vanquishes sin. He's He's a meek king. He allows mourners into his presence to come into the throne room, those who are tattered and bruised and dirty with their filth. He he allows them to come into his presence. He cleanses them. He makes his enemies into friends, and he gives them new life. The last comfort that we see is that Jesus is an eternal priest. He is an eternal priest. Uh, He lives forever forever. Book of Hebrews says that because of this, you don't need to set up uh, another priest to come after him, one to replace him. Uh, merely mortal priests would they would die, and there would need to come along a new uh, high priest to take care of the work, especially on the Day of Atonement. The comfort that we get from this as Christians is that death is not the last word. Death is a huge problem for for secular philosophy. Uh, death is a huge problem for any other religion or faith system in the world, death is huge, but death is not a huge problem for the Christian. Death is not a huge problem for the Christian because it's not the last word. Because we know and we have seen, we believe that Jesus Christ conquered death and that he conquered death forever. Because death is not the last word, then our final destiny is assured. Our life is hidden with Christ's life. Our resurrection is part of his Resurrection. So death is not the last word. Our final destiny is assured. So we take comfort in our great high priest, our priest who reigns, our king who conquers sin. Adam craved the food of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Israel craved the food of that which they believed God would never give them in the desert, constantly complaining, when 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 are you going to feed us next? Jesus Christ came to this earth and he said man does not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God John chapter 4 Jesus said my food is to do the will of him who sent me he is the righteous one who became for us the bread of life he conquers us by conquering our sin and our food is to receive the life-giving nourishment of Christ the ruling priest the interceding king he is the bread of life. Look away from your sin 
and run to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us then as we come to the table of our Lord. May might your grace, your mercy reign. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would take your form.